Hey Shepherd, welcome back to Digital Worship. I'm Pastor John Carolis, one of our associate pastors, and it's good to be with you as we continue in our series, Good Goals, Life Guided by God's Word. We've been hearing from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthian church, the first one that he sent them as he gave them general insight into what the Christian life looks like, some practical advice on how to handle some some situations they were facing, and also an answer to some of the questions they had for him as a church leader. Today we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and how it connects to this idea of consideration. We've been walking our way through posture, through discipline. We've been talking about focus, and today we're talking about consideration. What is our view toward other people? How should we think about them? Should we think about them? And how might that shape the way that we put together or identify the goals God has for you and me? So we're going to get into this topic, and what I want to just start with today is the idea that uh, as we pursue goals in our life today, in this present moment, in our cultural space, most of the time we are always directed to think about ourselves first. We're always uh, uh, taught to think about what's going to be best for me, what's going to be best for my family, what's going to be best as I pursue either a certain level of achievement, a certain level of accumulation of things, how might I get after the things that I want or the things that I need. And we, we tend to have that sort of selfish or self-centered kind of egotistical mindset. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, certainly not on a cultural level. That's what everyone is doing. How else can you go about making decisions? But Paul's letter to the Corinthians shifts the focus a little bit. It shifts the lens through which uh, we look at life. And he invites us to take a different route toward that level of consideration. So listen to these verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then we'll talk about them for a couple of minutes. Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue, but while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much, but the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So, what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one god. There may be so-called gods, both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful, so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. All right, so these verses may seem a bit random, a bit intense, but here's the situation that was going on in Corinth, and it gives some light. Again, the underlying uh, principles that Paul is teaching from applied to the specific circumstances that the people in Corinth were facing give us some insight as to how we can navigate the lives and the challenges that we face today. So what's going on in Corinth? Well, Corinth, again, was a city that was full of all kinds of idol worship. These people followed all kinds of different gods, and they would worship in their temples, and they would worship at their at their uh, little pavilions, and they would worship the statues that they had of them, and a custom 
associated with that worship of all these false gods was also eating the food that was sacrificed to them. And it was thought that by eating that food, you could garner some kind of, um, uh, some kind of favor from them, some kind of appreciation or some kind of uh, special attention from these false gods. And so when a believer would be brought into the Christian church, they would recognize that those false gods are not powerful, are not real, are not worth following. In fact, that goes against the truth of God and his word through Jesus revealed to us as his own perfect son. So what should a new believer do when it comes to food that was offered to this false idol? Well, it makes sense. You should avoid that situation because we do not endorse the belief that you're going to be favored by God because of the kind of food you eat, when you eat it, uh, how you eat it, or any of that kind of kind of stuff. Now, a mature Christian in their faith at that time would recognize, you know what, ultimately, spiritually, this isn't going to have an effect in God's relationship with me. So I may be free to eat this food or that food, regardless of where it came from. But for somebody who is still learning the basics, for someone that is still taking those first steps of faith, it is confusing. It's it's violating to their conscience to engage and endorse a, a connection with, with the food that's in that kind of situation. So Paul is simply encouraging the people in Corinth to consider the people that are newer to their community, to consider the fact that their consciences may not be ready to engage with these different areas of freedom that their more mature members may have had. And in fact, there's a little bit of an irony in what he's talking about because this strong, mature Christian so quickly rejected the idea that their weaker, newer Christian may need their kindness, may need their patience, may need their own... um, their own self-discipline in order to continue to grow in their faith. It's almost like that mature and superior knowledge Christian wasn't that mature in the first place. Catch that irony in there. This, this mature Christian should be the first one to go and be living a life that, it, that is encouraging, that is supportive to the growing faith of someone new to this community of Christians. And that helps us in our walk through life as well when we consider what is it that God is calling me toward. See, what, what Paul is talking about here in these opening verses is he says, you know, we all know that knowledge is good, but it's love that changes the church. There's this idea of knowledge and this idea of love. And in the world we have today, knowledge is what kind of guides a lot of our decisions, a lot of our relationships, a lot of how we go about living life. And so knowledge is what we count on to be sure, to, to be certain, to find guidance, to find truth. But love, Paul says, love is what changes the church. Love is what helps us grow closer together. Love is what, um, is what binds us together as brothers and sisters in faith. And so what he's saying is, I know you value knowledge. I know you count on what you can cling to, what you can measure, what you can observe for certainty. But here's what I want you to, to trust. God loves you. And God loves those who trust in his promises. God loves the new members of your community as well. And those whom God loves, God also knows. So you may not know your neighbor that well. You may not know where they land on the spectrum of maturity and immaturity spiritually. You may not know the battles that they're facing or the things that they've recently walked through. But what you do know is that they love God and God loves them. And if that relationship exists, you don't have to count on your knowledge to consider them valuable. Instead, you can count on God's knowledge of that person, simply putting your faith in the fact that he knows what's going on. He understands the struggles people face. He knows the situations that they're navigating. He is the one caring for them day in and day out, moment to moment, constantly showering them with his grace. It's not on you to evaluate these other people. It's God who has entrusted that role to himself. He'll handle it. You're called simply to love your neighbor. 
We trust this God who has all things under His control. We believe in the teachings that He has given us through His Son, Jesus. So we don't need to try and uh, be the, the arbiter in the, in the life and the practices of the people around us. It was true for the people who were uh, considering whether or not they should eat meat sacrificed to idols. Paul, evidently willing to step all the way into full-on veganism for the rest of his life, if that's what it took to be patient and, 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 and to be long-suffering with the people that were new to that faith community. So the question may be, how does this connect to you and I? Well, as Christians that are still struggling with sin, right? We're constantly tempted into thinking of ourselves as better than we should. We always like to think of ourselves as, you know, a better Christian because we've been around the church longer than somebody else. We always think of ourselves as being a little bit better than somebody, having more information than somebody who doesn't align quite with our beliefs. Superiority is a major issue for us. We see it in our denominational differences. We see it in our political differences. We see it even maybe in our family differences. What Paul's instruction here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 shows us is, look, God's love is what has made you new. God's love is the only thing that's going to make your neighbor new. Don't worry so much about the superiority complex. Don't worry so much about the differences in knowledge. Instead, put your trust in the love that God has for them and know that his knowledge is what is changing and transforming your heart is what's changing and transforming the heart of your neighbor. As we are walking through this new season of opportunity to consider our goals, let that be a guiding principle. How might you put first those who are new to faith? How might you put first the people that you're inviting into a closer relationship with Jesus? How can your goals recognize the fact that God's love is what's transforming and changing them rather than your own wisdom and and winsomeness in your vocabulary, rather than in the way that you conduct your life? How can your goals reflect the fact that God is changing them through his knowledge and his love for them? I hope that you have a a wonderful week ahead. I hope that God's grace and peace guide you over the next few days. And we look forward to meeting with you and seeing you next time as we walk through the final chapter of Good Goals together.